If you're taking your own notes, the title of the message is The Church Has Lost Its Voice. And uh, this message comes out of a really interesting conversation that I had last year. I was contacted by a man who used to head up uh, an organization, a fairly well-known organization. I'm not going to mention names today because that's not the point of my message, but a well-known organization, a a group of Christians who are known uh, for their work of lobbying politicians. And he contacted me and asked if we could catch up. And so we organized a time and place and we caught up for a very enjoyable hour of conversation. And during that conversation, we talked about a statement that he had made and he made it again as we were chatting. And it's the statement that I've used as the title of my message today. And that is, the church has lost its voice. Now, when he used that, he was talking about the church and the voice that he believed the church needs to have about moral and ethical issues in our country, particularly last year, of course, about same-sex marriage. But more than that, he was talking about things like abortion and euthanasia and other moral and ethical issues. He felt that the church wasn't speaking up enough and loudly enough about those things. And I, I, I agreed with his statement, but I said to him, I think you and I are coming at different angles here. I said, I believe that the church has lost its voice, but on another message. And my reasoning is this, and this is what I shared with him, and I want to share with you today, is that if you were to ask the average Australian what the church's view was on those moral and ethical issues that I just mentioned, same-sex marriage, euthanasia, abortion, and the like. If you were to ask the average Aussie what the church believes about those things, most Australians would be able to tell you that the church is against them, by and large. But if you were to ask the average Australian what it means to be a Christian, they would give you an array of answers to that question. They would say, oh, a Christian is someone who's born in a Christian country, or A Christian is a person that's been raised in a Christian family, or or a Christian is a person that tries to live a good life and goes to church on a regular basis. I dare say very few Australians would actually be able to clearly and simply tell us what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is really all about. Very few would say, well, it's, it's about personally accepting what Jesus Christ has done on the cross through his death and resurrection and it's choosing to be a follower of his. Very few people would come up with that answer. And so I said to this man, I agree with you, the church has lost its voice because we've actually lost our voice on our main message. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? What message does Melbourne need to hear? What message does the city of Frankston so desperately need to hear from Christians and from the church? What does Australia and the other nations need to hear? What voice does the church need to have? What voice have we lost? I'm going to answer all those questions by asking and answering two other questions, and they are these, and they're the the two main points of my message today. Number one, what do people need to hear from the church and from Christians? And number two, What do people need to see? So let's touch on those. Number one, what do people need to hear? And we're going to put on the screen for you our text for today. If you're taking notes, it's 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. It's a wonderful summary of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. 
Uh, some church historians tell us that the Ephesian church by this stage had about 60,000 members. That's not too shabby, is it? And Paul writes this very simple statement to Pastor Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. And really in that one verse, the gospel is beautifully encapsulated because if you were to study it out, you find that this verse teaches us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the divine Son of God who came to earth in human form. As we sang this morning, He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Finally, we were able to see what God was really like because God came and dwelt among us. Previously, people had uh, written and spoken about what they thought God was like, but in Jesus Christ, we see what He's really like. That's why I love reading the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And as we read about the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, we see reflected in the pages of those books what God is really like. We don't have to make it up anymore. We see what God is like. And and, and I don't know about you, but I actually like what I see. It's wonderful. This is the gospel that Jesus died and rose again as payment to declare us justified. That is to be fully pardoned, not guilty. And he came to secure our eternal freedom. This is the message that all people need to hear. The gospel It's the good news that's mentioned more than a hundred times in the New Testament. It has always got to be our number one message, but this sadly gets drowned out by a lot of other messages given out by Christians, churches, and Christian organizations. Anything that drowns out the gospel is an enemy of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Well, it comes from a Greek noun and a Greek verb. The noun is evangelion, and it means good news. The Greek verb is evangelizo, and it means to bring or to announce the good news. You'll probably notice that we get our English words evangelism or evangelist from those. Evangelism is the spreading of the good news, and evangelist is one who brings good news. And in that broad sense, we are all evangelists because we are all people that carry the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus and the New Testament writers borrowed these words from everyday language. They didn't just make them up. When these words, evangelizo and evangelion, were used by Jesus and the first century church, people weren't wondering what they were talking about. They knew because they were borrowed from the culture of their day. In classical Greek, an evangelos was one who brought a message of victory or other political or personal news that brought great joy. So in the Roman Empire, for example, uh, which was well known of the time of conquering different nations, uh, and then once the nation had been conquered, an an evangelos would turn up in the marketplace and the crowd would gather to hear the good news, which was good news for Rome, but not good news for the people who had been conquered and slaughtered and had all their stuff taken. But that was what this word meant back in those days. Let me share with you a little bit of a short history lesson. Uh, We had Tim Costello 
uh, at our Cheltenham campus a couple of weeks ago, and he touched on this, and I'd encourage you to go online and listen to or watch Tim's message. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, of course he was here, wasn't he? I knew that. Yeah, silly me. So you've heard it. But if you weren't here for whatever reason, please catch it. Right. Short history lesson. Everybody ready? I feel like Matt Bodley now, the teacher. <laughs> okay, I will. Pray for me, brother. Caesar Augustus is the earliest figure of the Roman Empire that the New Testament mentions, and that's because he was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth, according to Luke chapter 2. Julius Caesar had been assassinated. Um, a, a period of political unrest then followed uh, after Caesar, Julius Caesar was assassinated. The Roman Republic then struggled for a time in civil war when Octavian, who is later referred to as Augustus in the Bible, took the throne in 31 BC. And so he came to power about 25 years before Jesus was born, 31 BC. That's because uh, the people that developed the calendar got the dates wrong. So Jesus was born around 6 BC. He was born six years before himself. So, which demonstrates that Jesus has always been ahead of his time, right? Okay, thank you for the groan. Okay, Caesar Augustus was called the Son of God, who was the great saviour of the whole earth through bringing an end to civil war and ushering in the Pax Romana, that was the 200 years of peace uh, to Rome. The themes of freedom, justice, peace and salvation permeated his reign. Whenever the great deeds of Augustus were proclaimed, they were presented with the Greek term evangelion, good news, or gospel. His deeds were celebrated with poems and inscriptions, coins and images, statues, altars, and structures. An imperial quote of the day read as follows, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, evangelion, concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin with his birth. Caesar is depicted as having been born and therefore as human, but also in some mysterious way he was also divine. The poet Horace wrote the following words, Upon you, Augustus, however, while still among us, we already bestow honours, set up altars to swear by in our name, and confess that nothing like you will arise hereafter or has ever arisen before now. And so let me summarize all of that in one paragraph. Augustus was seen as a God in human form who ushered in a new era of peace. He was called the Son of God and the Savior. His birth changed the calendar and his deeds were celebrated as good news or gospel that brought, that brought joy to all people. See the similarities? And in the midst of all of this, Jesus was born. At the beginning of his gospel, Luke wrote about Jesus being the Son of God who would bring good news that would cause great joy for all people, a Savior, a Messiah, who is the Lord. At his announcement, as we see in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
So the good news, you can see the clash of cultures back in that day as the whole world believed that Augustus Caesar was God in human form and then the Christians come along and go, no, Jesus is God in human form. Jesus is good news. No wonder the church experienced such horrendous persecution for the first 300 years of its existence. Jesus then built his church on this good news, his gospel. And it's this good news that people still need to hear today, that Jesus is God in human form, the sinless man who died for their sins, who brings forgiveness and freedom. They need to hear that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And what a different message Australians and other uh, nations so often hear from Christians and the church. We're known for being judgmental finger pointers, where we're told here that God was literally in the person of Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it goes on and it says, and God has given to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. What should the church be known for? What should Christians be known for? Our number one message has got to be the good news that God loves people, that He's actually not judging them, that He has placed judgment on Jesus Christ on the cross to enable all people to be reconciled to Him. That's the good news, church. So sad that I, I talk to non-Christian people in the broader community and so often they'll say to me, oh, I'd like to go to church, but I'm scared that the roof might fall in on me or words to that effect. I always tell them we've reinforced our roof. Everything's fine. It's come along, you know. People feel that they can't come to church or if, you, if they find out that, you, that you're a Christian, they're suddenly nervous because they feel that their entire life might be picked apart and judged. Where do they get that message from? Christians. I think it's a tragedy that most people know the church's position on ethical and moral issues, but they don't understand the gospel because it's been drowned out by all the other things they hear from us. This needs to cha change. People need to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what people need to hear. What do people need to see, secondly? And finally, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's the longest section of teaching that we have from Jesus in the Gospels. And toward the beginning of this sermon, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus said these words, let your light shine before others. Let's just stop there for a moment. Light shining. So light is something that emanates from something else. You can see me clearly today because there is light shining. We can see one another and you can read your Bibles or, or make notes because there is light shining in here today. Something is emanating that helps us and we can see it uh, and, and, and it helps us in this gathering today. If we were to switch all the lights off and shut that door there, we would be in darkness and, and suddenly we wouldn't have that aid. We wouldn't have that help and so Jesus here is speaking metaphorically, let your light shine from others. And in other words, as my followers, as my people, I want something to emanate from you. And then he tells us what it is. 
Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and they too then would glorify your Father who is in heaven. People don't just need to hear the gospel, they actually need to see the gospel in action. And when people see, that's when they start to become interested and and, and the light is attractive. People don't just need to hear it, they need to see it in action. Jesus talked about this at the start of his ministry. He lived it all of his ministry and he talked about it again at the end of his ministry before he was crucified. Jesus at the start of, the, of his ministry, we read about that in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And uh, it tells us there that Jesus had a habit of gathering with his spiritual community. He was uh, on the Sabbath day at the synagogue. And I don't know whether this is prearranged or spontaneous, but it tells us that he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he, he wound it open and he read from a section that we know as Isaiah chapter 61. And he, he stood up to read and then he sat down to preach the Word of God. We don't have his sermon recorded. All we have is his text. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to bring good news, the gospel, evangelion, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's how he started his ministry. That was day one of the ministry of Jesus. And out of all of the things that he could have talked about, he could have talked about morality, he could have talked about judgment. Of all the things he spoke about, he spoke about evangelion, good news. And this is what the good news looks like. This is what I want you to see uh, as the uh, light of the good news emanates from me and from my people. That's what Jesus was saying here. The gospel is good news to the poor. Now, over the last hundred years, the church has interpreted that basically as those who lack the comforts of life. But there's much more to it than that. A first century Hebrew understanding of the poor would be as this. Those on the margins of society and thus those who are excluded from social and religious community because of a number of reasons. They could be excluded because of their gender. They could be excluded because of their age. They could be excluded because of poverty or disability or impurity. Jesus lived this message as you read through the Gospels. He was constantly getting in touch and loving people and helping people that were on the margins of society, the down and out, the up and out, and you'd find Jesus hanging out. Constantly, women, those who were stuck in immorality, those who were poor, those who were discriminated against, those who were not allowed to be in the, in the church, if you like, in the community of faith. See any similarities here to what the church still does to certain groups of people within our community? The gospel is good news to people like that. And they need to see that reflected in us, church. The gospel gives freedom for the prisoners, that is freedom to those who are held captive either in literal prisons or prisons of habit. The gospel gives sight to the blind, that's a blanket term for healing 
and miracles that are to accompany the preaching of the good news. The gospel sets the oppressed free. It brings comfort to those who are pressed down by what life has dished up. The gospel proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, and this is a stunning statement. The year here is not talking about a 365-day period. It's talking about a, a time period. We are living right now in the time period of the favor of God, the time when God is willing to accept all people despite their sins because all sins have been dealt with through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's actually referring to the time of jubilee, uh, in Leviticus chapter 25, it talks about those who for whatever reason have lost their land and understanding the worst thing that could happen to you in that day and age, 3,000 plus years ago, it was a subsistence culture, an agricultural culture, and if you lost your land, you lost your livelihood. People would become uh, into indentured servitude to others or worst case scenario, they would become slaves. And yet the book of Leviticus Quite, a, quite an amazingly uh, amazing document that was so ahead of its time uh, in its day, for the first time ever given written rights to women, the first time ever given written rights to slaves. Uh, we look back at it now and we go, what on earth were they thinking? But if you understand where Leviticus fits in the time period, it was way ahead of its time. And we read in Leviticus chapter 25, the introduction of the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, everything had to be restored to its original owners. All the land had to go back to the original owners. And so imagine how you would feel. Suddenly you're in, one day you're in slavery and the next day you're a landowner because you get your land back. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He said, I've come to introduce a perpetual Jubilee because we all find ourselves in slavery to our sin. And all we hear sometimes from the church is, is judgment about our sin. And yet Jesus comes along and says, through my death and resurrection, you get liberated from your sin and you are brought in to, uh, to a perpetual jubilee where you are completely and progressively restored. That's got to be a message of good news right there. In modern day terminology, we would say Jesus declared an amnesty on sin. Last year, we had another um, national firearms amnesty. And uh, 57,324 firearms were handed in in Australia between July and September last year. That's pretty staggering, isn't it? Out of those 57,000 plus firearms, there were thousands of automatic rifles, handguns, and one rocket launcher. I kid you not. Like, where do you even get a rocket launcher? eBay? I might go and check that out this afternoon. Just search on eBay, rocket launchers, and see what happens. So somebody in Australia had a rocket launcher. They wanted to get rid of it because obviously illegal, right? If you were caught with a rocket launcher, normally there would be problems. There would be a fine or maybe a jail term because that is wrong. It's breaking the law. If we use Bible words, that would be a sin. And yet when there's an amnesty, you could just put that rocket launcher on a trailer and drive to a police station. You could walk in there and say to the guys, oh, I need a bit of a hand. Can we have some of the tough guys, the stronger blokes? come out here. Why? 
oh, I've got a rocket launcher on my trailer. Oh, okay then. And so the bigger cops walk out and they take a corner each and they lift up the rocket launcher and they carry it into the police station. I mean, I don't know if this really happens or what, but where you would actually hand a rocket launcher in, I'm not sure. But you get the picture, right? And then they store the rocket launcher and, and they say to you, have a nice day. And off you go. You're free. Think about that in connection to everything that you and I have ever thought, said, or done that's wrong. The stuff that we feel full of shame about or guilty about or whatever the case might be. And Jesus says, you don't need to hold that anymore. You, all you have to do is hand it in. Why? I'm not going to be punished? No. Jesus took the punishment through his death and resurrection. doesn't mean you go out and buy another rocket launcher. It, it, it transforms your life, this gospel, Right? But you can hand it in with no questions asked. Jesus said, I have come to usher in a time period known as the, the, the favour of the Lord. That's got to be good news. That's got to be something that, that Australia needs to hear. That God is willing to accept people despite their sins. So why is it that his people are so often reluctant to do the same? That's how Jesus started his ministry. And as I said before, he practiced what he preached until he was crucified. And just before the end of his ministry, he taught a number of parables. One of them recorded in Matthew chapter 25 is the parable we know as the parable of the sheep and the goats. The righteous who let their light shine, who do good works of feeding the hungry and the thirsty, of offering hospitality to the stranger or the foreigner, Good works of clothing those with insufficient clothing, of looking after the sick, of visiting prisoners. Jesus said about those people who let their light shine, particularly in those five areas. He said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, and then he refers to them as brothers and sisters of mine. He said, you did it for me. It isn't by accident that Jesus emphasized at the beginning and the end of his time on earth the importance of demonstrating the good news, the gospel, by doing good to those in need. Oftentimes the church is seen as protecting its own self-interests rather than looking out for the interests of others. If we're going to lobby governments, it should be on behalf of those who have no voice. People like the poor and the marginalized asylum seekers, victims of domestic or other kinds of abuse, widows and orphans, the homeless, the trafficked, those struggling with disability and mental illness, prisoners, people in hospitals and nursing homes, the aged, those caught in the cycle of addiction. That's the gospel that people need to hear and see. That's the kind of Christianity that will attract people to Jesus just like it did 2,000 years ago. And I'm not saying we shouldn't lobby governments or politicians, although I think there's a much better way and something that Christy and I have done for many years, and that's actually to get to know our local politicians. So we know our local members, state, federal, local councils, and develop relationship with them. We have lunch together. We, we've had some of them in our home for, for a meal. 
and actually get to know them. We were sitting with one lady recently and we invited her to come into uh, our office and uh, we'd met her at a, at a, a movie screening um, and we'd had a really good chat uh, with her. She's a Greens member and uh, with Richard Di Natale as well. And, um, and, and so we invited her to come and have lunch with us. And during our conversation, we said to her, look, you know, we, we're here to support you. And, and so in any way we can, if, if there's anything that's going on in your life at the moment that, uh, that we can support you with or pray for you, we want you to let you know. And she looked at us. She said, no one ever says this to me. And, and so when we actually needed some help, uh, with one of the asylum seekers in our Cheltenham congregation, we were able to get in touch with our local politicians and they were more than happy to help. We have tripartisan support from our local Liberal, Labor and Greens members on those things. Why? Because we've developed relationship. We're not spending millions of dollars trying to lobby them. We're actually getting to know them as people and to support them. Sounds a little bit like the gospel to me. What do you reckon? I want to wrap up by just sharing a bit of a story with you. Happened a few years ago. Uh, Christy and I had bought a bike for Gigi and a bike for Trinity, our eldest and our youngest, for Christmas. And so we'd, we'd ordered the bikes, and a couple of days before Christmas, I went in to pick them up. And when I got there, the guy who was getting them ready for me said, look, they're not quite ready yet. He said, it'll take an hour. He said, you can go and come back, or you're welcome to stay if you want to. And I said, oh, I'll just stay. And while he was fixing the bikes, you know, putting the, the finishing touches on them, we got into this conversation. We talked about lots of different stuff. We talked about politics and all sorts of things. And then we got, it was two days before Christmas. And so I said to him, what are you going to be doing on Christmas Day? And he said, oh, my girlfriend and I are going to be catching up with uh, some friends. And he said, what are you going to be doing on Christmas Day? And I said, oh, we've got 300 people coming for lunch. <laughs> it's always a bit of a showstopper. And a conversation starter. And he just put his tools down. He looked at me. What are you doing? And I told him all about the Christmas lunch. And he goes, wow, that's amazing. We ended up chatting for about an hour. And during that conversation, he told me that he'd been brought up as an atheist, but he was an agnostic. And I said, oh, that's really, really good. I said, um, at least you're an honest atheist. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, atheists saying there's no God, they're saying that they know everything. And I, I did a little drawing for him and it was like you know if you look at that screen up there it's got edges because none of us know it all does anyone here know it all by the way no okay good that's good no no people for we need to pray over for pride today okay so if the edges of that screen and everything within that screen is everything you know how do you know god doesn't exist out here and so i said you saying you're an agnostic is actually very honest because you said you're saying i don't know whether there's a god or not and uh, so there might be one. And so we had this conversation, and during which I um, recommended a couple of books to him, and I left and, uh, and took the bikes. And then when I got home, I realized I'd left the helmets at the shop. And so the next day, I went back in, and I saw him, and I'd written the two books titles down on my, on my business card, and I gave it to him, and I said, look, really enjoyed the chat yesterday. If you ever want to catch up and have a talk, my mobile number's on the back. And he, he just looked at me, and he said, thank you so much. He said, when you left yesterday, I said to the boys, that's the kind of guy I'd like to sit down and have a beer with and a chat. And so we did, and we have. And we've actually become great mates. Next year, I'm doing um, his and his girlfriend's wedding. 
which is so exciting. And they come to the trivia night every year um, and sit on our table. And some of their other friends, none of them are Christians. They have no church background whatsoever. But a few weeks ago, as we were just chatting, he said to me, he said, I just want you to know, he said, before I met you, he said, all I ever saw of the church, and he referred to this particular lobby group, he said, that's all I ever saw. And he said, all it made me do was roll my eyes and walk away. He said, meeting you and chatting with you, I realized that Christianity and the church is different to what I thought. Uh, he's not ready to become a Christian. In fact, his mum rang him. He told me this. We both laughed about it. His mum rang him and said, watch out for the priest. He'll be wanting to convert you. And so he told me this and we both laughed. And I said, you know what? My goal in life is actually not to convert. I can't convert anybody anyway, right? And we've got to be careful that we don't develop friendships just to hook people we got to actually genuinely love and care for people. And I said to him, my, my goal in life is not to convert you. I said, if you get converted as part of this, then so be it. But I catch up with him because we're actually great friends and we're doing that honest journey. We just had breakfast together on Friday morning. That's what we can all carry, church, all of us, in our workplaces, amongst our family, our friends, as we're just going about our day as we go out with that openness of, Lord, whatever you want to do in and through me today is fine. We have those kind of chance, coincidental times where someone crosses our path. My father-in-law says a coincidence is a miracle, but God wants to remain anonymous. And we have those days where, you know, nothing happens, but other days where someone will cross our path, that we're ready to share good news, but more than that, to be good news to the people around us. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word today. May we as a, a church, individually and corporately, may we have as our main message, the number one message that people will hear from us will be the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May they hear it May they see it and may they glorify our Father who is in heaven as a result.